Hey, I'm Steph, and this is Not Today. Hello and welcome. How are we all doing? I hope the answer is well. Before we jump in today, we've got some pretty major true crime news going on right now. I'm sure we're all well aware at this point, but for anyone who is living under a rock and does not know, Gypsy Rose Blanchard has been released from prison. We did cover Gypsy Rose's story way back when. At this point, it's been a couple of years. Uh, But Gypsy Rose is a survivor of Munchausen by proxy. She didn't have Munchausen by proxy. Her mother did. But for her whole life, she was told that she was basically terminally ill, she had countless medical issues, and she was basically held captive by her mother. And after Gypsy Rose had her boyfriend kill her mother to free herself, she ended up going to prison. Her boyfriend at the time, Nick Godajan, did get life in prison. However, Gypsy, I believe, only got about 10 years. She ended up serving eight years, and now she is released. And there has been a lot of press around Gypsy Rose's release. She has kind of become like a major social media presence at this point. She's got over 8 million followers on Instagram. She's been doing countless interviews. She just released a documentary on Lifetime about her story and everything. And it's actually a really good watch. I recommend you watch it because there is information that has not been out in the past that has recently come to light about more struggles that she has endured, and it's really just crazy. But at this point, she is out and seems to be doing really well, which I am extremely glad to see. She's clearly gone through a lot of therapy and done a lot of personal work on herself, and it seems like she's in a pretty good spot mentally. I'm sure she still has a long way to go in her recovery because it's a lifelong thing, unfortunately, but She seems to be doing really well, and she has a husband who she seems really happy with. They're making plans for the future, and she's spending time with her father and her stepmother, who she loves, and I'm just really glad to see it. It was one of those things where you're kind of holding your breath to see how everything would go, because there was so much coverage of her release leading up to when she was let out of prison. It was like a highly anticipated event, and I didn't know how she would take it or how... I don't know, the public would perceive her. I was just kind of worried about it because going from basically being a captive your whole life to then spending eight years in prison saying that that's the most freedom you've ever had in your life and then being released and having truly all eyes on you, I could only imagine would be extremely jarring. So she seems to be handling it really, really well, but that can't be an easy thing. But it does seem like she has a really good support system around her. Like I said, her father and her stepmother have been in her life as well as other family members. And her husband is really supportive as well. And actually, she recently came to his defense on social media because I guess people were making comments about him online. And she posted that the D is fire. So good, good for Gypsy. I hope she's having fun. But um, yeah, I just hope she continues to do well in this environment because I could see how it would get difficult really easily. And although she has been having fun with her social media presence at the moment, posting selfies and everything I talked about, she also has said that she wants to use her platform for Munchausen by proxy advocacy and to help others in situations like she has experienced. So that's really awesome. All that to be said, I hope she keeps doing well and 
that's really all I have to say about that right now. Why don't we jump into our story? So today we're going to be going down to Laredo, Texas. Laredo is home to one of the oldest crossing points along the Mexico-United States border. It's also the nation's largest inland port of entry. Laredo's Hispanic proportion of 95.15% is one of the highest proportion of Hispanic Americans of any city in the United States outside of Puerto Rico. It is one of the least ethnically diverse cities in the United States. There is a very prominent Mexican-American culture in Laredo. It's known for its jalapeno festival, and it is called the Gateway City. San Bernardo Avenue is in downtown Laredo. It's an area also known as La Sanber. In the day, it's an area where there are a lot of mom-and-pop shops and other stores, but at night, the area changes. It's where a lot of sex workers are, as well as drug use and exchange. It has been compared to the red light district, at least at night. Since Laredo is on the border, there is a very heavy law enforcement presence there, so it was a pretty safe place to be. Which was why in 2018, when the body of a woman was discovered on the side of the road, the community was shaken to its core. The woman was found in Webb County, in a very rural area north of Laredo. It wasn't an area that city people tended to visit because it was all farmland and a lot of dirt roads. A rancher had found a woman's body face down in the brush. She had been shot at close range several times. It seemed like an execution-style killing, completely out in the open. The body had been found on US 83 North near Camino Columbia Road. The body had been left there for what seemed like hours, and law enforcement believed that she had been killed and left there rather than being killed somewhere else and dumped there. Investigators found 40 caliber shell casings next to the body, as well as distinct tire tracks that appeared to be from a pickup truck. Captain Federico Calderon of the Webb County Sheriff's Office and Texas Ranger E.J. Salinas led the investigation. And when the story hit the news, initially they hadn't released the identity of the victim. However, later that day, a medical examiner was able to identify the woman as 29-year-old Melissa Ramirez. The community around San Bernardo Avenue all looked after each other, so when the news came out that it had been one of them, they were devastated. And that also applied to the community of Laredo as a whole. The discovery of Melissa Ramirez's body was jarring for everyone. Reporters had learned that the victim was a sex worker and had been picked up on San Bernardo Avenue before her murder. According to investigators, Melissa Ramirez had been on the streets for years, using money from sexual encounters to buy drugs. But her family said that she had kept her lifestyle a secret from them. When her mother, Maria Cristina Benavides, was notified of her daughter's murder, she was, of course, devastated and completely blindsided. Melissa, according to her friends and family, was a very private person. They had no idea what she did in her free time, and they hadn't ever seen her do drugs or drink. Her mother did worry about her, though, because there were times when Melissa would be gone for two to three days at a time. Two weeks before her daughter's murder, Melissa told her mother about a dream that she had, and looking back on it, it's pretty terrifying. According to her mother, Melissa said, they're going to kill me. They're going to kill me with a gun just like this, as she held up her hand like a gun to the side of her head. It's like she knew what was going to happen to her. Melissa's family wanted to know who had done this to her, but when they found out about the sex work, they realized it really could have been anyone. 
But thankfully, it didn't take long before investigators got a break in the case because a vehicle had been seen by witnesses leaving the scene of the crime. The homeowners of the adjacent property had spotted a dark-colored truck along Jeffrey's Road, which had been near where the victim had been found. They saw that the truck had stayed there for a while, long enough to catch their attention. And as the truck had left the area, witnesses were able to get a license plate number. This was such a rural area with not much of anything around that the car staying in that spot for any extended period of time definitely made it stick out. Not only did these witnesses notice the truck and take down the plate number, but they were the ones who found Melissa's body where the truck had been, leading them to believe that the truck was tied to the body, which is not a very crazy conclusion to jump to. Police had been trying to figure out who that truck belonged to, and somewhere along the way, they enlisted the help of Border Patrol. It was Border Patrol's job to run the plates and kind of figure out whose car it was. And soon they found out that the owner of the truck had actually been a police officer. And that was shocking information for the police to discover, that one of them could have been their suspect in this crime. Not like that hasn't happened before, but they didn't want that to be the case. At the same time, they wanted to catch the person who had done this, so they did confront that police officer and bring him in for questioning, as well as get a search warrant for his home to bring in any weapons he may have had. According to the officer, he was out with his kids looking at properties for sale, and he never saw the body that happened to be near his truck. They checked his history and his alibi, and in the end, this officer had just been in the wrong place at the wrong time. Everything he told police had been corroborated, and he was cleared as a suspect. That is tough. Also really creepy, he just so happened to park his truck, like, right next to where a dead body was, with apparently his kids in the car, and he didn't see it, which is probably for the best that he didn't see it, but also, he looked really guilty. As I was researching this story, and I heard that there was a truck next to where the body was found and then it drove away, like right before the body was discovered, I thought to myself, okay, case closed. This is going to be a quick one. But no, it really was just a bad case of wrong place, wrong time. Lucky he had an alibi, an actual like reason to be there, because if he didn't, that would have been really hard to get out of. So investigators had to go back to the drawing board because they didn't have any other leads at that point. Their first step was to gather information on any boyfriend or possible Johns Melissa may have had leading up to her murder. They didn't know if his murder had something to do with the drug or sex trafficking world, so they needed to figure out who Melissa had been with the night of her murder. Melissa's mother, Christina, gave officers the name of a man who had been spending time with her daughter only days before the murder. He was a regular of Melissa's. He had also been driving a vehicle similar to the one that had been seen in the area. So when they ran a background check on this John, they learned that he owned a gun similar to the one that had been used in the crime. So with that information, they set up surveillance of his home. Their concern was that a potential confrontation with this guy would lead to a shootout with police because if he was the guilty one, then he might not want to go willingly. They didn't know if he would be armed and dangerous, so they prepared for him to be armed and dangerous. September 6, 2018 was the first time they were able to confront this man outside of his home. They told him what they were there for, and he cooperated with police immediately and went with them to the station for questioning. 
He told officers that the last time he had seen Melissa was two or three days prior, after picking her up on San Bernardo Avenue. And at the end of the night, he dropped her off at the Pan American Motel. And according to him, that was the last time he had seen her. He then handed over his cell phone to the officers for them to search it. And once they got the cell tower data that said he was somewhere else on the day of the murder, he was cleared as a suspect. And that was really disappointing to police because, again, they seemed like they were getting really close to the person who had done it. And again, the man was cleared. Officers also followed up on three other men Melissa had been involved with, and all three of them ended up being cleared as well. So once again, investigators were back to square one. They canvassed the area, driving up and down San Bernardo, visiting different residences and businesses, and hoping that anyone had information that would be useful to them. It was real, old-fashioned police work. And through their canvassing, they had been able to piece together Melissa's final few days, who she had been with and who she regularly spent time with, but they were still missing that critical time before she had been killed. One of the names that came up in relation to Melissa was a woman named Claudine Luera. She was a close friend of Melissa, who was also working on San Bernardo at the time, so police were hoping she could provide some insight. Claudine Luera spent a lot of time on San Bernardo Avenue. She was also a mother and had five children who loved her dearly and her family loved her. Her daughters remember their mother being beautiful, funny. She was the best cook, thoughtful, loving, and always reminded her children how much she loved them. Claudine didn't grow up with much, but according to her sister Angelica, they had what they needed. Family was very important to her, and she wanted her kids to have a better life than she did, but she also felt like she couldn't provide that for them, which was when she turned to sex work. She became depressed and over time developed a heroin addiction. It was just a vicious cycle. She didn't want to be working on San Bernardo, but at the same time, she felt like she had no choice. Her family had been very concerned for Claudine's safety, way before there was a murderer potentially targeting the women of La Sanber. But now, with a killer still on the loose, the community of Laredo was on high alert, and the women who walked San Bernardo Avenue were definitely on edge. Claudine included. She was terrified. When she found out that Melissa had been killed, she asked her daughter Ciara to get her a taxi to bring her to her daughter's apartment. She asked to stay there since she was afraid for her safety. And the community wanted answers because they felt like it was only a matter of time before someone else was killed and they didn't know who would be next. And they were right. Ten days after Melissa's murder, another body was found only a mile away from where the first body had been. On the morning of September 13, 2018, a truck driver spotted the body of a woman in a ditch on the side of the highway. The truck driver called it in and said that he believed the woman had been hit by a car, but upon closer inspection, he saw that she had been shot. The driver had pulled over, and while he was on the phone, he urged the police to hurry and send paramedics because this woman was still breathing. She had been laying there for hours before someone had stopped. Which is a terrible detail because she made it to the hospital alive, but later died from her injuries. And it just makes you wonder if someone had stopped before this truck driver in one of those hours she had been laying there, she may have survived, which is so tragic. She wasn't able to give the police any information in the state she was in before she died, so they were stuck. 
She had a lot of personal belongings scattered at the scene and multiple shell casings were found. However, the victim only had one gunshot wound to the back of her head. And that indicated to police that she had been trying to run away at the time that she was shot. Police still didn't know the identity of this woman who was found, but they assumed that she may have been another sex worker like Melissa. And news traveled quickly around Laredo. Claudine's family soon found out about another body that had been found, and they were terrified that it had been her. That was what the word on the street was, and they had been hearing that it was Claudine. So Claudine's sister immediately contacted police because they needed to figure out if it had been her. Claudine's sister Colette contacted an investigator she had been friends with and gave them a bunch of information about her sister, like identifying scars and tattoos. But this investigator told her that he wasn't on this case. It was the Texas Rangers who had control of the case. And the Texas Rangers on the scene had been looking through all of the scattered belongings that were there, and they did soon discover that the victim was, in fact, Claudine Luetta. And after calling the coroner's office, her family was informed of that. Claudine's daughter believed it could have been one of her ex-boyfriends, but it turned out that Claudine may have been a witness to Melissa's murder, or if not the actual murder, she had seen who Melissa had been with that night. And police, like I said, had been looking for her right before she was killed. Police speculated that Claudine had been targeted because she had seen Melissa with whoever killed her. They didn't know that for sure, but it would have been one hell of a coincidence if that wasn't the case. This was the first time that the community felt very unsafe, and they really wanted answers. They were putting pressure on the police. And it's honestly really refreshing to see how much this community cared about these murders. I mean, obviously, it's a terrifying thing, and they want answers to stay safe themselves. But also, they deeply cared about these women who had been murdered. And I feel like so often we hear about cases where a serial killer will target sex workers because they think that nobody cares about them, they don't have family, and the police won't care either. And while that does happen, unfortunately, in this case, the community and the police deeply cared for these women, and they were going after it with everything they had. And I think that's really great. But things were getting really scary because it was clear that this killer had an M.O. This person was targeting sex workers, killing them execution style, and leaving them on the side of the road. So police felt like they may have a serial killer on their hands. That is what it was turning into. It had become a game of cat and mouse because police were getting closer, but they still didn't have many answers. At the second crime scene, police were able to recover a very clear tire mark in the dirt. There was also a tread mark left at the first crime scene, and it matched that at the second. The shell casings were also matched between the two crime scenes. This killer had used a 40 caliber semi-automatic handgun in both of these killings. And police weren't saying much to the media. It was hard to keep everything from them since it was a pretty small community and people were getting very nervous, but they didn't want the killer to know what they had. Of course, because if the killer knows, then they switch it up and then they just keep doing what they're doing, but slightly different to throw off the police. But it wasn't long before the police got a call about a possible third victim. Only one day after Claudine was killed, police received a call about a woman named Erica Benya. Erica Benya had been picked up on San Bernardo Avenue and was taken to a client's home. This was a client she knew. 
And as far as she knew, his name was David. But as the night went on, he started making some really concerning comments. He brought up Melissa and how he was concerned police were going to suspect him since he had been with her. Erica tried to calm him down, and she told him it was fine because he didn't kill her. But he told her they might have his DNA, so they might think that he killed her. And this statement definitely set off major alarm bells for Erica because now she's starting to piece together that this is most likely the man who has killed multiple of her friends. And so she starts trying to figure out a way out of there. So she told him that she was starting to feel sick. And David told her they could get something to eat that would help her stomach. They stopped at a local gas station near his home where he parked behind it near the truck drivers, that way cameras or witnesses wouldn't see what he was about to do. He pulled out a 40 caliber handgun and pointed it at her face. And Erica panicked in that moment, of course, because now she knows for a fact that this is the man who was killing her friends and she's staring down the barrel of his gun. A struggle happens and David ends up ripping off Erica's shirt, but she did manage to get out of the car. And by some stroke of luck, when Erica ran to the front of the gas station, a state trooper was pumping his gas. So around 9 p.m. that night, trooper Francisco Hernandez watched as a shirtless woman rapidly walked up to his car and told him that a man was trying to kill her, all of which was caught on the surveillance cameras at the gas station. And the man that she was saying had almost killed her had already left the gas station, but this was by far the biggest break in their case. She told the state trooper that she had gotten this feeling that something was wrong about him. She got a really horrible vibe. So the state trooper asked if the man had assaulted her when he took off her shirt. And she told him that she had taken off her shirt to escape his grasp as she got out of his car. He had been holding onto her shirt, and in order to, like, wiggle free, she just slid right out of her shirt and started walking very, very quickly to the police officer, which is great. So by 11 p.m., Erica had been taken to the substation where she explained that the man who tried to kill her was named David. He drove a white truck, and she had even been to his house that night before she had escaped. And according to her, he had a really pretty house. They thought maybe he worked in the oil fields or something because he clearly had money. And when police asked her if she knew where the house was, she told them she did, and she took them to his house. And with a search warrant, the police were able to go inside, but there was nobody home. Inside, they found AR-15s and pistols that had been out and ready to be used. Police knew he was ready for a shootout if they had shown up just a little while earlier while he was there. But since he wasn't there, they didn't have to deal with that, and they found out that the homeowner's name was actually Juan David Ortiz, and they immediately began searching for him. They now knew his car, which was a white pickup truck, his license plate number, his name, and what he looked like. It had been almost four hours since Erica's escape, and seven miles away, that truck was spotted at another gas station. Another trooper spotted the truck, and after verifying the license plate number, he waited for the man to get out of the car, and once he was out, they screamed at him to stop where he was. They asked him if that was his truck, and in response, he said, You're scaring me. What's going on? But as they had him slowly turn around to, you know, come up and handcuff him, he took off running. 
So police have to chase him on foot at this point, and they have this entire thing on their body cam footage. But after he made it into a parking garage of a hotel, they lost sight of him. So backup was called, and they regrouped to figure out how they could capture this man. They had multiple law enforcement agencies surrounding this hotel and barricading it. Basically, every police officer to ever exist in Laredo was at this hotel. And a woman named Priscilla, but who was known as La Gordiloca News on Facebook, saw the police activity in front of this hotel and decided she would live stream the event on her phone for the community. Which was kind of a funny detail about this because this is clearly a dangerous situation and she's like, oh, yep, I'm going to live stream this on Facebook. I'm sure the community was very grateful to her for live streaming it because they all wanted to know what was going on, but she very clearly put herself in danger by doing that. Anyway, she wasn't the only one posting on social media. Juan David Ortiz was also posting on Facebook to his friends and family as the police were quite literally closing in on him. He wrote things like, This is Doc Ortiz signing out. To my wife and kids, I love you and farewell. So... It was clear that he was checking out, and that wasn't good news for the police that were downstairs because that meant approaching him was extremely dangerous. Maybe he was going to shoot them, maybe he was going to shoot himself, they didn't know, but things were escalating. Around the same time, police began doing an organized search of the parking garage. They went floor by floor checking every car, every door, and potential hiding place and they made it all the way to the top floor around 2.30 a.m., where they spotted a black pickup truck. And when they looked in the truck bed, they found Juan David Ortiz laying face up in an attempt to hide from the police. So they grab him and they arrest him, and thankfully there was no shootout. By 2.50 a.m., they had Juan Ortiz at the station for questioning. And investigators learned quickly that Juan David Ortiz was actually law enforcement. Because minutes before his arrest, people at the Border Control Intelligence Office began putting together that the Juan David Ortiz they had been looking for was one of their men. He was a Border Patrol agent. Everyone on that case was extremely disappointed to learn that the man behind these horrific crimes was an agent. He sat in the interrogation room for eight hours, and something that really stuck out to those questioning him was how arrogant he was. He even made fun of the troopers who chased him on foot for being out of shape because he smoked them, in his words. He outran them. He was very proud of himself for that one, as he grinned and sat back in his chair looking up at the ceiling. Juan David Ortiz was 35 years old. He had been married for 14 years to a woman he met in high school, and they had three kids together. They lived in a beautiful home just north of Laredo. He grew up in Brownsville and served in the Navy as a medic and was assigned to a Marine unit. So he spent some of his life saving people. There was nothing in his background that could have indicated that Juan Ortiz was capable of something like this. It's always so interesting to me when cold-blooded killers have a whole wife for like many years and multiple children and they live such a like normal, seemingly happy life. I can't even imagine what it would be like to be married to a person that you think is the love of your life and you've been with them since high school and you have multiple children with them and then you find out that they are in their free time killing women on the side of the road execution style. I don't know how you could even trust someone after that. 
because the person you're supposed to be able to trust the most is like the worst person ever. At the early stages of Juan Ortiz's eight-hour interview, he was very evasive and uncooperative. He didn't want to give officers his name, since, quote-unquote, they already knew, and he wouldn't admit that he had done anything. Officers knew without a doubt that he was their man, so the big challenge was just getting him to talk. After a few hours, he began talking about how he had PTSD and his medications had been affecting him, and that he'd seen a psychiatrist. Early on in the interview, one of the officers questioning him asked if he had ever blacked out for a period of time. So hearing that, a kind of light bulb went off in Juan Ortiz's mind and he clung on to that statement. So he said that he had begun blacking out when he would take his medication and drink. And he took his pills every day. And I guess he was saying he had a drinking problem. So he was blacking out all the time. Extremely convenient for someone who has killed multiple women to not remember any of it. Initially, he completely denied knowing who Erica was, but he didn't know that Erica was literally just down the hall giving her own interview to police. She was able to give them loads of information about him. Not only did she know where he lived, but she knew with detail how to describe the inside of his house. So they knew that she had definitely been inside, and they knew that Juan Ortiz had been lying to them, for sure. Because when he says he doesn't know who Erica Pena is... He's lying because she has been inside his house, no doubt. So little by little, the interrogation officers were able to introduce more evidence to him to break him down. They showed him photos of his alleged victims, both when they were alive and after they had been killed, which didn't seem to phase him much. So they talked about ballistics and how they matched the shell casings found at the scene to the ammo he had in his service pistol. He also had two women's purses in his truck, one of which was Erica Pena's. So they're like, hey dude, we know you're lying. Even still, he was cold, manipulative, and uncooperative. The first sign that things had been taking a turn was when Juan asked to see a photo of his family he had in his phone. He had seen multiple images of his victims, and yet the only thing he had a reaction to was the photo of his family. So that's something. I guess he, that's proof that he feels something. Not much, clearly, but anyway, after that, he submitted to a DNA sample, photos, and he got changed into an orange inmate jumpsuit. The real turning point in the interrogation was around 11.30 in the morning, so this is hours later. Juan began fidgeting with his handcuffs, and he let out a breath and said, Okay, I'll tell you. And he asked the officers to take off his handcuffs since he wouldn't attack them. Captain Federico Calderon removed his cuffs, and sure enough, he began his confession. He eventually admitted to knowing Erica and what happened between them. He told them that in the past, he had been stationed to patrol the San Bernardo area, so he had gotten to know the women there and the drug users. He talked about being friends with Melissa, he would take her to buy drugs and food, and he said that the night that he killed her, she had been using drugs and passed out in his truck. She had, you know, slumped over and was passed out, and he got annoyed that he couldn't get her out of the car, so he quite literally just shot her. He used his service revolver, the gun he had on him every day for work. I don't know what part of your brain has to be broken, to be annoyed with someone and to think that the solution to that annoyance is to just shoot them, but that is what he did. 
After killing Melissa, he went home to his wife and kids. And in his words, that's when the monster came out. It was clear by the way he was talking about these women that he did not care about them at all. I mean, that's not shocking, but he really didn't. It was as if they weren't even people to him. His reasoning behind why he did everything was that he was quote-unquote cleaning up the streets. His first killing wasn't planned, but after he did it, he was saying that he kind of became some sort of vigilante killer in his eyes, like he was doing a service to the community and the world by killing these women. But he was buying them drugs, paying them for sex, and then saying that he was cleaning up the streets by killing them, as if what he was doing was noble. It was a piss-poor excuse, but he said that was his mindset. He was the judge, jury, and executioner. He told officers that Claudine Luera had realized that he was probably the man who had killed her friend just moments before he killed her. She began screaming at him, You're probably the killer. You're probably the killer. He had her get out of his truck in the area near where Melissa was killed, and he shot her. She didn't even see it coming. Once Juan Ortiz had confessed to everything, police asked him, is there anything else to try to tie up the interview? But that was when they got some shocking information. They found out what he had done in the hours between Erica's escape and his capture. At first, he had gone back home to prepare for law enforcement to get there, gathering his guns and everything. But after a little while, he decided he wasn't going to just wait for them. Instead, he was going to go out and kill two more women. He went into Murphy's gas station around 11 p.m. and grabbed three Bud Light Tallboys, and he drove away. He then went back to San Bernardo Avenue and picked up Janelle Ortiz. 28-year-old Janelle Ortiz was a sex worker and was a regular on San Bernardo Avenue in September of 2018. She had friends and family calling her and telling her about the murders, but she told them that she had angels watching over her. But that night, Juan Ortiz picked her up and ended her life. He told officers that they would find her body by the 15-mile marker by some gravel pits. Officers were immediately sent out there and confirmed that there was another body there. And after killing Janelle, Juan Ortiz returned to San Bernardo Avenue yet again and picked up Guiselda Hernandez Cantu. She was also a sex worker. He drove her to an underpass and had her get out of his car. And he told her that San Antonio is to the north and Laredo is to the south. And he told her to go north and to just start walking. She asked him why he was just letting her go. And he told her that he wanted her to relay a message. He told her he was the one behind these killings. So she took a few steps away from his truck, but then she turned around and started walking back toward him and told him that what he needed was God. God could help him, but he didn't want to hear it. And again, he told her to walk away, but she wasn't listening to him. So he shot her three times, taking her life. Griselda's body was found by another driver who called it in. They knew before that point that Juan Ortiz had been the man behind everything, but that was information that only the killer would know. Police also discovered that since Ortiz was a Border Patrol agent, he knew what was going on in the investigation the entire time. In his confession, he spoke about downplaying the requests of the investigating officers. He was actually asked to help them run the license plate and locate a suspect for his murders. It was like something out of a movie, because the person who was supposed to be helping them find the murderer was the murderer. 
The first time the families of the deceased saw Juan Ortiz was in his first court appearance. Melissa's mother screamed at him that he was an assassin, and as he was being walked out to his seat, he turned around and he smirked at her. It showed everyone that he had no remorse for anything. That day in court, Juan David Ortiz pled not guilty, and his attorneys got a change in venue for the trial. It was moved 150 miles north to San Antonio. And even worse for the families, COVID delayed the trial. Once COVID hit, a few of the family members of the victims felt like they would never get justice for their loved one. But on November 28, 2022, the trial finally began. In their opening statements, the defense painted Ortiz to be a veteran suffering from PTSD who was prescribed a toxic mix of medications. They had leaned into the idea that Ortiz had been blacking out after drinking on his medication which was the district attorney's biggest fear, that and that the jury would sympathize with him and forget about the victims, because San Antonio, where the trial was taking place, was known as Military City. There is a very large military community, so he had reason to be worried about that. So his job was to put the victims front and center. For the prosecution, the most compelling evidence was Erica Pena. When she took the stand, she told the court the same story she told police. She still had every detail in her mind and was able to relay that to the court. And the fact that her testimony was spot on to the recorded testimony that she had given to police years prior was really huge. The only problem was that Erica Pena had been high at the time of her interaction with Juan Ortiz, which put her credibility into question. But she said although she had been high, she was alert and knew what was going on. The defense tried to discredit her testimony, but her story was exactly the same. Her detailed accounts of everything coupled with the surveillance footage that caught her escape was extremely compelling evidence. The family of the victims felt like Erica Pena was on fire. She stood her ground, and because of her, they would get justice. After eight days of testimony and nearly 200 exhibits, the state and the defense rested their cases. The defense didn't call a single witness. They also never denied that Ortiz murdered these four women. But in their closing statement, they tried to say that Ortiz wasn't a cold-blooded serial killer. They said he served his country, and when he came back, he had issues that nobody took care of. But the prosecution urged the jury to look back at his confession, to watch him lie and lie and lie until he confessed. And it was important to note that when the investigating officer asked if he experienced blackouts, he ran with that idea. And he was, in fact, a serial killer. And after that, it was up to the jury. The families of the victims were worried it wouldn't go their way. But when the jury came back, they found Juan David Ortiz guilty of capital murder, which came with an automatic sentence of life without parole. The death penalty was taken off of the table before the trial began, and that was actually due to the family members of the deceased. Specifically, Guiselda Cantu's brother made an argument against the death penalty because he himself had gone to prison for murder, and he did his time, and he was at that point out, and he said that being in prison was punishment enough. And because he made such a compelling argument, the other family members of the women agreed that they should take the death penalty off the table. So he really has the family members to thank for that. Some of them even forgave him. Some of them didn't, which I can completely understand. But the fact that he had gotten an automatic sentence of life without parole was a huge relief for these families. 
They had to wait four years to get justice, and now they thankfully finally had it. And that's kind of where this case ends. Although Erica Pena was the star witness in this case, she has struggled with addiction since then. She was recently arrested on the charge of child abandonment by criminal negligence after overdosing on heroin laced with fentanyl with her child in her arms. She was released on bond, however, she was also arrested only weeks ago for assaulting a Laredo police officer. Pena had been clean for about two years and was on methadone to help her with her heroin addiction, but she stopped taking the methadone and fell back into addiction. And because of the severity of the case, CPS did need to be called. I wish I had better news about the survivor of this case, but that's the reality of the situation. I do hope she gets better for her child. But on a much happier note, Claudine Luetta's daughter, Sierra, now works as a clerk at the Webb County Sheriff's Office. She hated men in law enforcement after what happened to her mother, but she said that since then, she has met some of the best people at her job, especially her captain, Federico Calderon, who was the main investigator in her mother's case and is now her boss. She wants to potentially become a police officer herself in the future, but for now she is working on getting a degree in psychology and criminal justice. So that's really awesome. I completely understand why she wouldn't trust men in uniform after what happened to her mother and the other three women. But it's really amazing that she was able to find that passion in herself and learn that there are some really amazing police officers out there. Not all of them are as terrible as Juan David Ortiz. And I also think that it, that the police work in this case is something to be celebrated because, like I said earlier on, in so many cases where sex workers are the victims, it's not taken as seriously as some other cases are because sex workers to so many people are not seen to be as important as, say, someone who isn't doing sex work and is murdered. So I think it's really awesome that they did do so much police work and, you know, were on the ground canvassing and really didn't give up on anything as they shouldn't have because that is quite literally their job. But they did do a really good job of it. And I think that's really great. Despite the fact that Juan David Ortiz was on the inside of the investigation and he knew what was going on. I think that's so crazy that he was able to know where they were in the investigation and what they had. Like they were literally trying to keep things out of the media as many officers do in cases like this. And they try to keep things out of the media so the murderer doesn't know what they have on them. But the murderer was one of them. It's, oh God, it's really awful. But despite that, they were able to get him. And I think that's really great and shows how stupid Juan David Ortiz was because even though he had the inside scoop, he was still able to be arrested. So anyway, but all that to be said, my heart goes out to the families who lost their loved one. That is unimaginable. And I hope they're able to find some kind of peace and move forward. And it seems like they already have started to do that. But also, like I said, when I was talking about Gypsy Rose, it is something that is a lifelong struggle. So I wish them nothing but the best. But anyway, that is our story for this week. Why don't we move on to something a bit lighter and have a bit of a palate cleanser, and I'll tell you something good. My good thing for this week is that Alex and I recently got pickleball paddles. <laughs> we got a really cool pickleball set, and I'm excited to play some pickleball with my friends. Uh, even though I am a Midwestern girly now and it's cold out there is an indoor pickleball court place that we are going to explore this weekend and uh 
our paddles are pretty cool. They've got like a bunch of different colors and we've got a really cool carrying case. And <laughs> I know pickleball isn't the most exciting thing in the world, but hey, it's fun. You get together with some friends and you basically play oversized ping pong. Also, University of Michigan won the championship game, uh, which I think hasn't happened in like 20 something years, which is really awesome. So that's also good. I'm not the biggest football fan ever, but you know, when you go to a school and they win a championship, that's pretty freaking cool. So yeah, this weekend we're going to play some pickleball. There's a championship game parade, I believe, happening. So we're going to go to that and we're just going to spend some time with friends and that's really awesome. But yeah, that's all I have to say about that. Anyways, thank you so much for listening. If you would like to look at all the pictures we post of all the stories we talk about, check us out on Instagram at not today underscore podcast for a bunch of bonus episodes. One just came out recently. Check us out on Patreon at patreon.com slash not today podcast. If you'd like to snag some merch for yourself because we have merch, check us out at nottodaypodcast.myshopify.com. If you or anyone you know has a story of survival or something crazy that's happened to you and you'd like to send it to us and possibly hear it on on an upcoming listeners episode, send it to knowtodaypodcast at gmail.com. We have a TikTok that is not today podcast and a Twitter that is not today podcast, but the T on the end of podcast is a three because that makes sense. And just keep breathing. Yeah.